Let's pray together before we begin. Thank you, dear Lord. Father, there's such joy in our hearts, Lord, just to be together with, with Jesus this morning. Father, I just thank you for Jesus. I thank you, Father, so much for all the love that he's shown to us. Father, this morning I'm just asking, Lord, that you will do mighty things in our hearts, Lord. Father, that you will encourage us in Jesus' name. Father, that we should catch a new vision, Father, of Jesus in the midst. Father, we do thank you for what you're doing right here in Chichester, Lord. And we thank you that what we see in embryo now is going to have great effect, Lord, all around the world. We just believe that, Lord. And Father, we thank you that the hard digging that is being done is ready for the seeds to be planted. Hallelujah. And those seeds are going to grow and come into fullness. Father, we just thank you for all those people, Lord, who in the next few years are going to be blessed even through the work that you're doing in our midst. Father, I'm asking in Jesus' name that he and he alone might be uplifted, Lord. Hallelujah. That, Father, he might indeed be seen to be preeminent in the midst. Father, we've got to catch a vision of Jesus and live with it all the time. Father, therefore, I just pray today, Lord, you will sort out our priorities so that we should really know the way that you are leading us. Father, just take my mouth and use it for your own purpose, Lord. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. It may have surprised some of you that only uh, a little into the course I've got so involved with very practical matters. Do you remember, having defined what fellowship is, and having talked about whether the early church was a commune or a community, we've now had two studies, the last two studies that I've given, on how we should look after the poor and how we should make sure that our talents are used for the Lord. And I think that most of you um, would have thought that I would have spent much more time on deep spiritual matters connected with fellowship life rather than bumping straight in on practical matters. Can I say to you this? I have done that absolutely deliberately because I found that there, a lot of people make big mistakes when they're talking about fellowship life by giving all the highfalutin, high spirituality bit and funnily enough they never really then bump down to the ordinary nitty gritty of everyday life. And I wanted to avoid that, and I've done it by putting the emphasis where I felt it ought to be. In other words, in the outworking of fellowship living in the midst. Could I ask you, please, those of you who were here at the last two sessions, remember the words of James. Don't be a hearer only, please, but be a doer of the word. And he actually goes on to say, be doers, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And we are deceived if we think that having received teaching over these things, we can then carry on in the same old way. If we do that, we are doubly guilty as far as the Lord is concerned. Right? So I've deliberately bumped in on practical matters. Today, however, I want to backtrack just a bit. Having put that emphasis in, I now want to go back to uh, things that I think are far more basic than those things. For today, I want to talk about what are the basic aims of a fellowship and why is it necessary to have vision? Most people, I suppose, Christian and non-Christian, generally have some aims as far as their lives are concerned. There are very few people indeed around who uh, carry on their lives without having any aims. I suppose there are some who would say, well, my aim is just to do nothing in life, but they've still got an aim. But I've noticed this, as far as aims are concerned, most people's aims are very selfish, generally speaking. They aim to have a nice house, aim to have a big garden where the children can romp and climb trees, uh, aim to be the manager, you know, of a particular firm, aim to get an income into six figures, or something like that. <laughs> All the time they're interested in, in these ordinary mundane matters. Or they aim to get a degree, you know, they missed out earlier on, but now they're aiming to get a degree. And these are goals that they set themselves in their lives. Do you know, the tragedy is that it's very few people who actually meet the goals that they've set themselves. And a lot of people uh, who are elderly actually are very bitter and very disappointed. They think that they've had a rough time in life, but actually they haven't. They've had quite a good life. The tra tragedy is they haven't met the goals that they'd set themselves when they were younger, you know? 
You'll meet people, for example, who today are approaching old age, who had all sorts of plans just before the war. But the tragedy was they didn't know the war was coming. The war upset their plans, you see. And sometimes they look at their children and they say, well, it's all right for you, you've got every opportunity, but I never had this opportunity. And sometimes you can hear a sort of bit of disappointment in their, vo in their voice. And so often when people set aims, because they don't know what's going to happen, and they don't know really their capabilities, they often get disappointed when the aims don't come to pass, you know? I have a niece, and she, her aim was to work in CNA. Well, now she's been turned down. And she's really, you know, very disappointed about it. And she's trying for British home stores instead now. <laughs> but she does feel it's a sort of rung down the ladder, and she's already discovered the disappointment. Let me tell you something wonderful. God is not a disappointment. And the wonderful thing for us as individual Christians and for us as fellowships is this, that it is God who has set the aims and given the vision for what he's going to do in his church. And the marvelous thing is, if God has stated certain aims for your life and certain aims for the life of our fellowship, he is going to bring it to pass. He will give the necessary power to see that thing in action. Praise his wonderful name. Oh, why don't we see it? So often it's because Christians don't know what God's aims are in the fellowship life or even in their own lives. They sometimes they don't have the foggiest idea. Or if perhaps they have some aims, the aims are too low, you know? Do you know some Christians actually just want to get through the next meeting? That's all. As long as the next meeting's all right, that's what their aim is. It's far too low. And we as Christians have got to make sure that our aims are God's aims and not our own natural aims. When David was born, God showed Ros and I something about the bringing up of children. And he showed us that most Christian parents, and most parents in general, have aims that are too low for their children. Most Christians aim to make their, children a good, their child a good boy or a good girl. That's what they want, you know. In other words, so that we don't have any noise around the place, so that when I'm, you know, feeling as if I want silence, they'll jolly well obey it. And when visitors come, there'll be no noise about to disturb the visitors. And the Lord really showed Ros and I that that's not the aim that we should have for our children. Our aim is to make them good men and good women. And the Lord really showed us that with that aim in mind, then the plan for discipline, for encouragement, for education takes on an overall view and really takes on a pattern that you can understand. In fact, Ros and I actually spent an evening thinking, the Lord showed us, and he asked us this, what do you want to see in David? Think about it. And we sat there and we had a good think before the Lord and the Lord gave me something and gave Ros something and then we prayed and we asked the Lord to put that into operation. And you know, the words that he gave us and the words that we thought of are so marvelous because we can see in our discipline of David and in, our, in the sort of plans for development that we have, we can see them working towards that aim. Now, we've got to make sure that our goals are A, not too high or too low. They've got to be God's aims. Oh, I wonder how many people here remember the early days, you know, when the Holy Spirit was poured out. Do you remember those days, 66, 67? I was saved at the end of 66 and uh, early 67. And the Holy Spirit was being poured out in a wonderful way. And do you know what my aims were? They were the aims of most Christians in the move of the Spirit in those days. We only had one aim, and that is to make sure everyone got filled with the Spirit. We thought if everyone was filled with the Spirit, there wouldn't be any problems at all. There'd be unity, there'd be power, there'd be glory on every side. And well, there'd be absolutely nothing to hold us back. And that was the aim. And uh, those, I think there's one person in the midst here who actually knew me at university in those days. Do you know what I used to speak on all the time? It was the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Never spoke about anything else. Wasn't interested in prophecy, church life, wasn't interested in the Trinity or anything like that. All we talked about was the Holy Spirit. And in the first year of my salvation, do you know that my room was crammed with people? They were sitting on the desk. They were sitting under the desk. They were sitting in the cupboards. They were sitting all over the floor. And I was talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's all we talked about. And we used to see people baptized in the Spirit, left, right, and center. I was always popping out to minister to people for the filling of the Spirit. The results were quite wonderful. 
you know, and sometimes quite amusing. I remember going once to someone's uh, room, knocking on the door. They were expecting me to come and lay hands on them so that they could be filled with the Holy Spirit. That was the aim of everything. And when I actually knocked on the door, there was no answer, you know. I went inside the room, no one there. So I thought, well, I'll just sit down and I'll wait for a few minutes. After 10 minutes, the cupboard burst open and this couple who were expecting me burst out of the cupboard. They'd been so scared, so nervous of my arrival that they'd actually thought they'd hide away in the cupboard, you know? And finally, it was too cramped in there and the door came open and out they came. And I said, oh, praise the Lord, you've arrived. <laughs> They've been there all along, of course. And we actually prayed, and they got filled with the Spirit, you know. And you know, our meetings were wonderful. We just met together, and it was absolutely fantastic. It really was. But after a while, we began to see that the aims were too low. That when people were actually filled with the Spirit, it was the beginning of things. It wasn't the end of things, do you see? And then we had to start looking around. Well, where do we go from here? And do you know, we didn't know where we went from there. We just didn't have the foggiest idea where God wanted us to go from this point. Oh, we were filled with the Holy Ghost, all right. It was wonderful. But what did God want? And after a while, the playing of the tambourines and the singing came a bit monotonous. You know, there was no other plan. There was no one else who wanted to be filled with the Spirit. We've run out. <laughs> and so what, what could we do? Isn't it odd? Christians are still in that state today. I go to fellowship after fellowship after fellowship, and do you know I find they just don't know what God wants. And the majority of fellowships, the majority of churches, the majority of Christians are aiming at nothing. And they hit it absolutely every time on the button. <laughs> That's it. You know, they just want to get through. I fear lest there's anyone in our midst who has the same aim you know, just to go to another meeting. And don't see that God's got a higher purpose. Actually, the Lord showed me last weekend a, a lovely picture uh, about this. He showed me, uh, he reminded me of the times when I've flown, and the, the pilot has often made an announcement as the flight's been going on. You know the type of announcement that's made. It's always a bit nasal, isn't it, that comes over, you know. Uh, we're now flying at 39,000 feet. This is the type of thing. At 500 miles an hour, the journey has been absolutely on time, the weather at Heathrow is fine, and we should be landing as expected, you know. And the Lord brought to my mind an announcement like this, with the pilot saying, hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is your pilot speaking, and I've got good and I've got bad news for you. The good news is we've got a tailwind and we're making wonderful progress. The bad news is that the gyroscope has conked out and we don't know where we're going. <laughs> and I think that exactly expresses what I find in so many fellowships about. They know God's with them. They know it's wonderful. They know they're filled with the Spirit and God's doing glorious things. But if you actually say, oh, great, where are you aiming? Well, we don't know quite, you know? And they lack the, the positive statement of the aims that God has for them in their lives. By the end of this morning, you will know some of the aims that God has in fellowship life. There's something else, however, that is necessary, and that is vision as well. Have you ever thought of the difference between aims and vision? There is a different difference between them. The aims are the goals that you set your sights on. Now, you see yourself as you are now, and you think, well, I'm not too great at the moment, but I know what God wants to do in me, right? Actually, what God wants to do in each one of us is to reveal Christ in fullness, isn't it? so that every action, every thought, everything about us reveals Jesus. Now, the aims are the goals that are ahead. We set our sights on them. But what's vision? Vision is glorious, altogether more glorious. Vision is when the aims are mixed with faith, and you see it before your very eyes as complete. Hallelujah. Then you get all excited, because you know what you're going to be like. Hallelujah. You've actually seen it. You've tasted of what God has for you. And that excitement is sufficient to get you through any difficulty that's ahead. Do you know, it's the key of ministry to individuals. So often when individuals come in, they're wrecks in front of you. They're really pathetic, washed out rags of people. And what you've got to do 
is not uh, like so many do. Oh, more problems. Oh, they've got terrible problems. Oh, their problems are so great, we just, I just can't even think of beginning on it. If you do that, you're going to be worn out. Because every person that knocks on your door is going to have problems. You know? And you're going to be worn out. You're going to be saying, say to the Lord, Lord, why are your children in such a mess? That's not the thing to do. What you've got to do is catch a vision of what they're going to be like. That's the thing that spurs you on. I can look around this room and I can see people <coughs> whose lives have changed dramatically. And this pathetic individual came in and received encouragement in the midst. People saying, oh, God's going to do this in your life. It's going to be fantastic what God's going to use you for. Oh, sure, you've got problems now, but just think of when you're get, going to get through those problems. And those people have started saying, really? And they started getting the vision for themselves. Now, aims are necessary, but vision also is. We've got to do it in fellowships as well. So many, many people are critical of everything they're in. Whatever they join, because it's not perfect, they start criticising, crit oh, it's not like I thought it was, oh, it's not like this. And these are the people, and they're not helpful, they don't have the vision. These are people who can never go to a place and establish anything. They don't have sufficient vision. I travel around to fellowships, I have to speak to elders, and so often the elders are, they say to me, Roger, sometimes I just feel like giving up. It's not coming. It's not getting right. You know, every meeting's problematic. And sometimes I have to say, well, I've got a vision for this place. Hallelujah. You know that in, in Bow or wherever we are, Haringey or Hackney or wherever it is, it's going to be a, sh a bright, shining light in the midst. Can you see that? That God starts with the little things, but don't you despise the day of the little thing. Just see the glory that's going to be revealed in the midst. Those of you who are in the fellowship when we were young, it's so easy, you know, to look back. I hear people say this, oh, I preferred the fellowship when we were smaller. Those people who say that, they've forgotten what it was like. <laughs> we do this constantly, you know, we really do. And uh, really what they're saying is, oh, well, we're sorry all these other people joined. We'd like to be small again. There are so many fellowships all around the country who say, oh, if only we could grow a bit. You know, if we were growing, we'd be encouraged. Do you know those early days were horrific? <laughs> all we've done, we remember the good times. We forget all the agonizing meetings. I couldn't eat all day Wednesday because my stomach was so churned up for that Wednesday evening meeting. And we used to have meetings at Ralph's house, you know? And sometimes they were agony. <laughs> oh, they were glorious too but they were agony. We remember the glorious ones. We conveniently forget the others. We mustn't do this. But do you know what got us through in those early days? We all had a vision. Oh, yes, we did. Julie had a vision. When we were only handful, how many of us? Six? Twelve? I can't remember. And there she was, and in the midst, she said, oh, I see a vision, she said. I see the city of Chichester laid out, and I see pilgrims coming. Hands up if you were there that evening. Yes, now that's a few of us, isn't it? And she said, now I see hundreds and hundreds of pilgrims coming to Chichester. And she said, God's going to do a work in the fellowship that's going to bring thousands of people in to see what he's doing. And the six of us said, absolutely the word of the Lord. Amen. <laughs> if the local churches could have heard us, they would have said, this is delusions of grandeur that they've got. And there we were, bashing our tambourines. I have a recording of one of the early meetings. <laughs> I'll play it one day. <laughs> Olive and I are on it anyway, aren't we, Olive? <laughs> you see? Bashing away. Bum, 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 bum. Amazing. But we had the vision, you see. And do you know that vision lived within us? It still lives within my breast. It still lives inside of me. I know it was the word of the Lord. And no matter what difficulties came, and they were tremendous difficulties, it absolutely got us through. We've got to have a vision. If we don't have a vision, we're going to find the bumps, the difficulties in fellowship life impossible to cope with. And people up and down this country are so disillusioned because they can't see beyond the difficulties. Jesus did. Jesus saw the difficulties in the disciples and he still knew he could turn the world upside down with them. Hallelujah. He had a vision of it. 
And that's why I can't bear those people who all the time are seeing the negative. They are people who are preoccupied with the negative. They're people generally who've never achieved anything by themselves, and they're not adding anything to the overall vision. We've all got to have a vision. If you do not have a vision in this place, do you know you become just a pew dweller? That's all. You become a churchgoer and nothing else. Instead of being part of something that is vibrant and something that is wonderfully alive and something which has a vast future. Every one of us has got to see it. Incidentally, when I learnt to drive, it was the first thing I learnt. I had a very clever chap who taught me to drive and the first lesson, I remember it so well, he threw the keys over the car to me, right? He said, get in. And I uh, put the car keys in the lock, opened it up, knew where the door was anyway, <laughs> and I opened the door, I sat down in the driver's seat, closed the door, and he sat next to me, said, you've made your first mistake already. And I said to him, well, what should I have done? Coming through the boot? What should I have done? And he said, no, he said, you've made the mistake all new drivers make. When you looked out of the windscreen, you looked in front of the car. He said, the first lesson, Mr. Price, is this. When you learn to drive a car, you look as far forward as possible and preferably drive on that horizon. You don't look just in front of the car like this. <laughs> you see? Now, in Bogner, where everyone is very old, that's how they tend to drive. <laughs> but we mustn't drive like that. We drive on the horizon. It's the only safe way to drive. And so, we in our in fellowship life, we mustn't be preoccupied with the bumps right here and now. And there will be bumps right the way along. We've got to see the vision of what God is doing in the midst. That's how to drive, that's how to run, uh, as far as fellowship life is concerned. And by the way, it's the key to be successful in your own spiritual life too. Jesus didn't say, you know, all Christians are going to have an easy time. And it's going to be wonderful and you don't have to worry. You won't ever get any problems after this. He didn't say that. He said, in this world you will have tribulation. But I've overcome the world. So set your sights where I am and the little bumps are not going to affect you as much. If you get preoccupied with the failure in your life and don't have an overall vision, don't see that his aim for your life is to produce obedience, to produce Christ, manifested in your flesh, then you're going to be tripped up by these problems along the way. Let me just show you that. Let's turn to the Bible. All right? And let's go to uh, 1 Peter. And turn to chapter 1. All right? I'm going to read from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Isn't that amazing? He's saying, look, you're going to spend the rest of your time in heaven. Don't get preoccupied down here. There's an inheritance up there, a brand new mansion. Don't worry about this little tent down here. Sets their vision high. And then, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. See, you're going to have problems, but what does it matter? Because it all, every single one of them, are going to be used for the good to achieve his purpose in your life. And every difficulty you come across, it isn't there to trip you up and make you feel, oh dear, you know, it's so hard, I'm not getting anywhere. It's there for you to see that Christ is being produced in you. In another part of Scripture it says this, we glory in tribulations. You see, we glory in them. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. In other words, it's all character building, and it's Christ's character that is being built within us. 
We've all got to have vision. That's why Proverbs 29, 18 says this, where there is no vision, the people perish. They fade away. They can't cope with the problems. And you know, if you don't have a vision for this fellowship, you cannot cope with what's going to happen in the fellowship. You can't do it. It's going to be too much. If you don't have a vision for your life, you won't be able to cope with the things that are going to occur in your life. You won't stand an earthly, but hallelujah, you're going to stand a heavenly because the Holy Spirit is going to reveal these aims as far as you are concerned. Do you know, I've had I'm a very blessed man. I'm perhaps the most blessed man in the midst today. I'm one person that has seen clear visions and seen them come to pass. There aren't many people that that's true of. I went through a time when I honestly didn't think body ministry worked. I said, Lord, it cannot work. Everyone's doing their own thing. Everyone's got their own ideas, and they're all pulling apart. And yet you've brought us together and said that we can function as one body. Lord, I can see the vision, but I can't see it in front of me. But the vision gave me enough determination to carry on. And you know, I'm so blessed. In the last few years, we have seen it in the midst. We saw it last Tuesday at the communion service. The pulling together. I thought it was amazing. We saw it the Tuesday before last. That incredible meeting where the Lord just moved. We've seen the vision come to pass before our very eyes. Absolutely wonderful. Jesus himself had to have an aim, and he also had vision. You see? And if Christ needed an aim and vision, so all of us need the same. What was the uh, aim Christ had, by the way? T let's just have a look. Two little scriptures. Go to uh, Hebrews. Right, Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. And here it is, and these, oddly enough, are the words that are said by Jesus to God while he was in the cradle. Before he could speak with his human mouth, he was communicating to God in his spirit. And this is what he says. Uh, I begin verse 6 of Hebrews 10. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast no, had no pleasure. Then said I, and this is Christ talking, Lo, I come... In the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. God, I am here on this earth for one purpose, to do your will. And everything in Jesus' life was done with that aim in mind, to do the will of the Father. His vision is given in Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12 and verse 2, Here's what we're told to do. This is it. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And Jesus himself saw the vision. What did he see? He saw people who were chained to sin who were going to be released. He saw people who were in bondage to the devil and he saw them release with a smile on, his, on their faces. He saw a beautiful bride, a people who were God's people, and he said, Father, I'm going to do anything that's necessary to achieve that end. It was the vision that he received. We've all got to have vision, every single person here. And God always gave his people vision. He always told them what his aims were. You know his aims for Israel, don't you? that they were to be a holy nation, his nation, a testimony of him throughout the whole earth, a kingdom of priests. That's what it's all about. And he didn't just stop there. He then showed them a vision of what it was going to be like. Have you noticed with these Old Testament prophets that so often they give a warning and then they give what God wants to do? Have you noticed that? So they always say, the Assyrian is coming into your land. It's going to be devastated. You're all going to be removed. And then it goes on to say, but the desert will blossom like a rose. There will be happiness. There will be peace on every hand. And God paints this picture. I love that story about Jeremiah. Do you remember, uh, Jeremiah was taken by the king of Israel, uh, of Judah, the southern kingdom, and he was put in prison. And Nebuchadnezzar came into the land and started taking over the whole land. And it was ravaged. 
And Jeremiah had gone on and on about how awful the king of of, uh, Babylon was going to be. He was going to destroy the land. And then God said to him a little thing. He said, oh, Jeremiah, your uncle's coming tomorrow to visit you. Isn't that nice for God to tell him that? And he said, when he comes, he's going to offer you a piece of land. You are to buy it. Have you ever thought of what a disaster that would be? The whole land's been taken over. Who on earth wants to spend good money buying a plot of land that the Babylonians are going to take over? You know, absolutely no one in their right mind. But God told Jeremiah to do it. And the uncle arrived and he said, oh, uh, hello, Jeremiah. There's a piece of land up north. He didn't tell him it was now worthless and useless. And Jeremiah said, oh, yes, I'll have it. And he bought the plot of land. And the news went all around Jerusalem. Jeremiah's buying land. The very chap who told us that land would be worthless and useless, that the king of Babylon was coming to take it all over, he just bought a plot. What was the message? God hasn't finished with Israel. Israel, God was saying, you're going to go through a bumpy patch, but you're going to be all right in the end. And Jeremiah's investing for the future. Praise God. Let me show you where it says that. Turn to Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32, and then we'll get on to the aims. Right? Uh, We won't read it, but in verse 6 to verse 9 of Jeremiah 32 is the story of his buying the land. Go to verse um, 14. Here's the message of God. Verse 14. Jeremiah 32, 14 Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these evidences, these are the evidences of purchase, this evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed and this evidence which is open, put them in an earthen vessel that they may continue many days. This is Jeremiah 32, verse 14. Then verse 15, here's the message. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again. That's it. And you read the rest of the chapter. He states it again and again and again. Look, although difficult times are just around the corner, glorious times are coming at the end. Now, that's the need for a vision as far as we are concerned. Everyone needs to have the vision of what God is doing. So what are the aims then that God has for us as a fellowship and what are the aims that God has for every fellowship that he's established? Why has he established fellowship groups? Yes, it is for his glory. Yes, we can think of individual things. At the moment, I found my vision has expanded enormously. I see us with our own farms. You see? I can almost visualize the farms. I see us with our own schools. Schools. You see? I see that in front of me. I see us with perhaps a Bible college, even. Isn't this amazing? That's what I see in my vision. Oh, I can't see it in the natural, but I can see it with my vision in front of me. But I don't want to talk about sort of particular things. Can we talk about general aims? Now, I'm going to write up six aims that God has for us as a fellowship. And uh, the order, I think, is important. First of all, we are here to show our love for the Lord. That is the first aim of any Christian group, or should be the first aim, and any fellowship group. All right? That's the first. To show our love for the Lord. The second aim is this. To produce mature, stable, and holy believers. That's the second one. All right? I'm spelling these out, and you'll find all your individual visions will fit into one of these six. The third is to incite, I love that word, incite, it's normally used of violence, you know, incited to violence, well we're incited to love, great stuff, you know, beaten up until we love, (laughs) to incite uh, Christians to love and good works. All right? To incite Christians to love and good works. Number four, we've had before, is to care for 
the poor members, and we've seen who they are. They are, of course, the um, widows, the orphans, those who are financially poor, those who are poor in terms of time. Number five is to preach the gospel. And number six, then, is to do good in the world. Now, those six things generally cover the aims of any fellowship group. And, for example, you see, if we think of Christian schools, it wouldn't just be open to Christians, it would be open to anyone who wanted a Christian education. It would be a form of evangelism. Right? It would be a form of testimony to the world. They'd see what Christian standards really can achieve. Well, it fits in to one of these six. Whatever aims that we have, they will fit in somewhere in these categories. But it's important to get the order right. Now, these six can be split into three groups. Number one and number two, that is to show our love for the Lord and to produce holy, stable, and mature Christians all concern our commitment to Jesus Christ. And that comes absolutely tops. That's the first thing. Remember, please, we are here for his pleasure. We are here to love him. We're here to worship him. We're here to adore him. The head is, is here to receive from the body all that it ought to receive. Our primary function is that commitment to Jesus Christ. Number three and number four go together and they concern our commitment to one another. Right? That's uh, interrelation, in, sort of relationships within a fellowship, relationships generally in the body of Christ. And number five and six also go together, and they concern our commitment to the world. To the world, and I'm not going to leave it there, I'm actually going to say to the world, Jesus died to save. And our aims actually uh, involve these three things. Top is commitment to Jesus Christ himself. Secondly, there's commitment to one another. Thirdly, there is commitment to the world. And we must make sure that even though these things may be done altogether, that this order of priority is maintained. Now, there's a word of warning that I give everyone here. If you get these in the wrong order, you're heading for trouble. You see, there are some churches and some groups, and all they do is number five and six. Everything's geared to evangelism. Got to evangelize. You'll find all their money is spent on evangelism. All their programs are spent on evangelism. Every service is geared to the final altar call. You see? That's what it's all about. There are terrible dangers in that. Because it is number one that comes first. If you get number one right, number two and number three will come automatically. But if your commitment to Jesus Christ and your love for the Lord isn't your first aim, you will go wrong. Do you know, the children of God were wonderful when they first began. They were wonderful. I knew Faith Levi. Levi. Whoops, Levi. I knew Abraham Levi in London who are uh, the children of Moses David, the leader of the sect. They're now a sect, by the way. They're not to be touched by Christians. But they were fantastic when they began. What was their mistake? It was all evangelism. You got people in, you got them saved, then you sent them straight out onto the streets to lead others straight in. And I remember a meeting in London where we were at, and it was with uh, the Central London Fellowship in the very early days. There was just a room full of us. And we were worshipping the Lord. We were giving all the praise and all the glory. And a group from the children of God came in, and they sat in the midst. And after they'd been there five minutes, the leaders said to them, come on, you've got to go. And they went out into the hall, and some of these people were saying, but we, we loved that. We were loving the Lord. They said, no, you go out to Trafalgar Square. Start preaching the gospel. And the leaders came back in and tried to tell the rest of the group off for not being preoccupied with evangelism. Unfortunately, they themselves have gone off. You know, they went seriously wrong. 
unless our commitment to Jesus Christ in every area, so that holiness, stability, maturity comes tops, the others are bound to lead us slightly wrong. Now, by the way, evangelism is important, but not more important than our devotion to the Lord himself. I know so many people who are full of ideas of evangelism, but their lives aren't sorted out. And you know, to get your life sorted out is a major form of evangelism. It really is. And to evangelize without your life sorted out is doing damage. People take one look at you, and you're sort of saying, uh, if you become a Christian, you're going to be like me. And they take one look, you know, and they think, heavens, you know, that's one thing, heavens, he warned me. You see, it's, it's no good at all. We've got to make sure it's our love of the Lord that is topped. Other groups, they have their commitment to one another as top priority, you know? And they're talking about they get a small group, they move into a commune, and they're interested all the time in getting relationships sorted out, relationships sorted out. And every meeting becomes an introspective sort of meeting. And people are standing up all the time saying, oh, I'm not right with everybody. You know, and every meeting like that, they never get on to praise and worship of the Lord because they're too busy dealing with these problems. If you get number one right, the others will come right as well. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. That's God's authority in your life. And all these things are going to be added unto you. Do you see the order? It's a vitally important order. And you'll notice in the Bible, by the way, that this is the order that is given in many, many places. Do you remember the time in John 15 where Jesus spoke about the vine? He said, I am the vine. If you read that carefully, and please do it at home when you, uh, after the meeting and after lunch, please read through the, the story of the vine. You'll notice the first part he deals with abiding in him. The importance of our being in fellowship with the Lord and really having a strong relationship with him. And after he's dealt with that, he then goes on to talk about our relationships with one another. And then having dealt with our relationships with one another, he then finally goes on to the testimony to the world. But there's the order that he gives. Do you remember also in Jesus' prayer when he prays to the Father? The first part of the prayer is totally preoccupied with the glory of the Father. Father, I've glorified you. Therefore, Father, glorify me. It's preoccupied with the glory of God to begin with. Then he goes on and prays for the, the disciples. I pray for those that I leave behind, right? And then he's preoccupied with them. And then finally in his prayer, he goes on to pray for the world and specifically for those who will hear through their testimony. There's the order as it comes. All right, let's uh, go to the book of Colossians and let's see it in the book of Colossians. I think this is the best... The best... Um, uh, passage to show the order that we've got to get. Uh, Colossians, and we'll begin in chapter 1. Do you know, by the way, that this is the key for fellowship groups? Many small fellowship groups try evangelism. It doesn't work. What they've got to do is start loving one, loving the Lord first. And as they start loving the Lord, people will want to come in. You see, the evangelism will begin automatically. Um, do you know the first half of the book of Colossians is preoccupied with the person of Christ, talking about Jesus all the time it is, how glorious he is, how wonderful he is, you know, how everything's centered in him, how all our vision has got to be of him. It goes right through into chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things that are above. Get occupied up there. Don't get occupied down here. Look at this wonderful uh, passage. Um, I think verse, we'll go from verse 9 of Colossians 1 and just take this in as we read it. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord and to all pleasing being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What's he occupied with? He's occupied with God and us. Those two things. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which has made us fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness. 
Who's being exalted here? It's God. Look what God's done for us. That's the push behind the passage. He has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Who is the image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. There's the statement. And he is before all things. By him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. In all things he has got to have the preeminence. In everything Jesus has got to come first. In everything in our lives he's got to be the first one. He's got to be considered before anyone else. Do you see the push? Imagine if every Christian put Jesus Christ first in their lives. Wow. Imagine the change in atmosphere in some of the houses that there'd be. If, if they were saying, oh Lord, I won't say that because it offends you, so I'm not going to do it. I won't do that because it offends you, Lord. There'd be a rapid change. I'm not going to say that about that person because I know you're listening, Jesus, and uh, I know it doesn't agree with what you think. Be amazing to see it. And our relationships with one another, you know, would get sorted out automatically if our relationship with him got sorted out. That's the first thing. Okay, he's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the first form from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. I would say this morning that's my favorite verse in Scripture, but it changes, you know, from week to week. But that is definitely Don Morris's favorite verse in Scripture. <laughs> definitely. He hasn't changed since I've known him. For it pleased the Father that in him, in no one else, should all fullness dwell. Go to Colossians 2.9. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him which is the head over all power and principality. And so it goes on and on. And it's only, you know, in Colossians 3.12 that you start dealing with our relationships with one another. Look what uh, Colossians 3.12 says. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against you, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And what he's saying is, in our relationships with one another, think of how Christ worked. And when you see how Christ worked, so it will influence your life. And then, finally, in Colossians 4, Chapter 3 to 6, you get testimony to the world. Here's the order in the book of Colossians, right? Isn't that amazing? The first half of the book deals with Christ and the glories of Christ. Ephesians is the same, by the way. And that's the emphasis we've got to have in every fellowship. Jesus, absolutely first, central. He's the one who should always be in focus. Look what it says in uh, Colossians 4, with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak, walk in wisdom towards them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always uh, with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. And when someone asks you for the hope that's within you and about the hope that's in you, don't think they're attacking you. They want to know. So give them the answer and sock it to them. Right? Even as Christ would have socked it to them as well. But Jesus must be first. I would even state this, that any fellowship or any church that is centered about anything, a man, a doctrine, it's very important, a campaign, a program, an idea, but not centered about Jesus Christ is off base and eventually it must die. It cannot sustain. No idea can be sustained that long. But Jesus Christ is the beginning and the end. He can be sustained for that long. Hallelujah. And our dedication with Christ goes deeper and deeper and deeper every day. Oh, it's wonderful. And to be preoccupied with him is the only thing. All right, let me just end by saying this. Whenever people come into the midst, they should see what is the main aim of the group that they are visiting. They should see the main push. Do you know, there's a church in America where I'm going to visit one day, 
right? I've promised some people who are there that I will. And do you know what their main push is? Their main push is Bible teaching, right? Bible teaching, Bible teaching, Bible teaching. And you will soon, if you go to that church, know that that's their push. Do you know why? They have an 8 o'clock service. This is not an Anglican church, by the way. They have an 8 o'clock service, an hour and a half's Bible teaching. They have an 11 o'clock service, an hour and a quarter's Bible teaching. They have a 6 o'clock service, an hour and a quarter's Bible teaching. That's all on Sunday. Am I pleased I'm not the Bible teacher there? <laughs> and then they have a Bible study Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday evening. And the women have women's groups in the morning of every day of the week as well. And that's the push. You wouldn't be in that church very long, would you, before you realized that was the push. If you've been going along there for a year and you said, what's the main aim of this church? They'd all say, are you joking? <laughs> what's the main aim for us? We think Bible study is very important. We think relationships with one another is very important. We think evangelism is very important. But you know what our main aim is? Our main aim is that we might love the Lord, give him the praise and the worship that's due unto his wonderful name. We see a world outside which has never thought about praising Christ, praising the Lord for what he's done. So we're going to make it up to the Lord. And do you know, when people come into our meetings, they should see in our meetings such adoration, such worship and such praise that they might say, I don't know what they believe, but I know one thing. Their aim is to please the Lord in every way. With that absolutely fixed, we are safe to go on to everything else. Now, in the next study and the studies after, I'm going to take these three things and I'm going to talk about how we manifest it in the midst. And we'll be talking about body ministry, we'll be talking about the way our meetings are run, and then gradually we'll work through our commitment to one another and then on to evangelism. Praise God. Can I just say this before I do finally stop speaking this morning? How many people in this place have a vision for this place? If you don't have a vision for this place, what are you doing in this place? You may be in the wrong area. I believe that God wants us to have a vision. I've got a vision which has outgrown the fellowship. My vision has got further and further ahead of the fellowship as time's gone on. I know I'm meant for this place. I find everything that happens exciting. I really do. Praise God. Perhaps I find it more exciting than visitors. But every person in our fellowship ought to find what God is doing in the midst very exciting and should be proud to be a part of it. You see? Yes, you should. That is part of your heritage. You cannot be a functioning member of a fellowship if you don't find this vision uh, actually within you. You must go where you must ask God to give you the vision. My vision gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And as for me and my house, why? We get thrilled regularly by what God is doing in the midst. Hallelujah. Do you know, in the way that a father gets thrilled with his own children, there's nothing so boring as one's own children to other people. You know? But you are fascinated by everything they do. You've got the vision for their lives. So it ought to be in the midst. We don't need people in the midst, who are just waiting to see what's going to happen, you know. And if it should go wrong, well, then they'll get out. That's not it at all. We've got, we need people with such a vision, not for just the fellowship, for the whole area, what God is doing in the area, and I believe in our fellowship, for the whole of our country. We need people with such a living vision that no matter what happens along the path, no matter what little bumps come, they'll say, hallelujah, that's all part of it. But we're pressing on. No matter what comes against us, we're moving forward for his glory and for his sake. Amen. God bless you all.